Tiger gets the puck. He clears out to Freddie Huckle on defense. Here going in is Larry Keenan. Shoots! Scores! Larry Keenan. He geeks the goalie. He went in and scored the first score of the year for the St. Louis Blues. Larry Keenan with some beautiful stick handling evens the score with 16.38 remaining. And this is what the fans have been waiting to yell about. It is Season 9, Episode 12 of the Sportscasters Podcast. I'm your host, Steve Bennett. Great podcast for you today. We have Jim Florentine, comic, actor, former host of that metal show. And of course, he's a touring comedian, and he's in Western New York starting today for the rest of the weekend at Carlson. The Comedy at Carlson in Rochester. Uh, We're going to talk to Jim Florentine in a minute. Also on the show today, author... Jason Turbo is on the show to talk about his book, They Bleed Blue. It is just about, oh, 12 or 13 hours after the St. Louis Blues won the Stanley Cup last night. And the podcast, I planned on posting it a little earlier in the week. And I said, well, I better wait until the, the Cup final is over so that I can talk about what happened before it gets too stale. And look, it was a really good Stanley Cup and it went back and forth for me thinking who the better team is, right? I mean, game one, you think, wow, St. Louis gets that game. And you think they're going to be really tough to beat. And then Boston just blows them out in game two. And you think, all right, well, maybe it was the layoff. And Boston will shake the rust. And they'll win this in five or six games. And then Chara gets hurt with what seems like a broken jaw. And you figure, well, they're just losing too many defensemen. Too many players in general. This is the Blues' destiny. And they get that game. And it's a really tough game to win. I was thinking about it the other day. So the Blues are up three games to two. And they get to go home to a city that has never won the Stanley Cup in St. Louis or anywhere else. And it's all you can talk about is tonight's the night. We're going to win the Cup. And it happened in 94 to the Rangers in Game 5 when they basically had planned the celebration and it didn't work out. It happened to the Penguins a few years ago when they got a home game and the talk was, wow, the Penguins are going to finally win the cup on home ice. And that didn't work out. They had to go win it in San Jose. Um, And it happened to the Blues. Just sometimes that hype, maybe you lose focus a little bit. Maybe it fires up the other team. But the Bruins played maybe their best game of the, the cup final. Other than Game 2, I guess you can't argue Game 2 was was not the best. Uh, And then that sets up Game 7. And I thought, honestly, going in, I thought the story would be that the Bruins won the Stanley Cup because in Game 7 they just had the better goalie. And Tuka Rask's numbers in elimination games during the postseason were phenomenal. He had like a 970-something save percentage. And then, of course, the outcome was the opposite. Uh, Bennington held them in during the weather, helped them weather the storm during the first period. What shots were like fourteen to four, and somehow St. Louis walks away from that period up to nothing. And then 
the huge, huge turning point in the game or the, or the defining moment was midway through the third period when Boston has a chance on a rebound uh, that they don't finish and it goes the other way and uh, the Blues score to go up 3 nothing. Could have been 2-1. to one. Instead, it's 3 to nothing, and that's basically the ball game and the St. Louis Blues uh, win the Stanley Cup for the first time in franchise history, which sounds really great. I would love to be saying that on this podcast in the next couple of years about the Sabres winning their first Stanley Cup in franchise history. Uh, if they don't win it, them or the Canucks, if they don't win it um, in the next three seasons, will officially have the longest drought um, before winning their first Stanley Cup. So both teams have three seasons to avoid that fate. Um, And right now, the longest Stanley Cup drought in the league belongs to the Toronto Maple Leafs. So that's awesome. I'm excited about that. But there's been a lot of long droughts ended, right, in this decade. The Blackhawks finally ended their drought. The Blues ended their drought last night. And there's been a few other droughts, long droughts that the Kings ended their drought. So hope for anyone with a drought, right? The Sabres, the Leafs, the Canucks. Uh, Teams have just not had a chance to win one. The uh, the Vegas Knights, I mean, it's been two years already for them. So great Stanley Cup, though. Good hockey season. Definitely an emotional roller coaster for Sabres fans. And I want to address the Ryan O'Reilly thing in a second. First of all, the Sabres had that incredible November where they barely lost. And they there was even a moment or two where they were literally first in the entire National Hockey League. And then it seems like New Year's came and they didn't win another game. I know there's some point in the season where if you trace it out, they were the worst team in the National Hockey League. Uh, from that point forward, maybe around New Year's, something like that. And um, just a really disappointing season. And they signed Jeff Skinner a couple days ago in the midst of the... And there's been a lot of controversy about that. And I don't understand it. There's these people who take the angle of, oh, well, they, um, they overpaid him. Well, you know what? I'm fine with it. What were they going to do instead? How do you replace 40 goals in that lineup? The same people that are killing them today uh, for trading Ryan O'Reilly are the same people who are killing them uh, for signing Jeff Skinner to the extension that they did, the contract that they did. If you weren't going to sign him, why did you trade for him? You traded for him, hoping you'd bring him in and you have a career year. And you brought him in and he had a career year and now you have to pay that. You have to pay that player. And him and Jack Eichel have a great chemistry together. It's a great one-two. It's a really, really good one-two punch. Uh, so I'm not at all worried about that contract. If at some point it becomes a burden, I'll worry about it then. But right now we got a young, great hockey player in his prime who has a really great chemistry with their other young, great hockey player. And let's see how that... Let's build off of that. Let's build off of Skinner and Dallin and... Michael, let's show the rest of the league, the players that are free agents here on July 1st, that we're willing to pay players to be here, to win here. Let's change the culture, right? Because the other thing they're getting killed killed about, and my 
God, Mike Carrington, I swear he's had the biggest Ryan O'Reilly erection uh, this entire playoff run. Nothing has made his trolling sensibilities more excitable than the Ryan O'Reilly story. Of course he wins the Smythe Trophy last night, because why not? But again, it was a situation I'm not sure what the Sabres are supposed to do. He stood in the locker room publicly and said that he had lost his passion for hockey. And I don't know what he said in his exit interview, but I mean, if you have a guy who's saying, look, I don't have any passion for this anymore. Is that the guy you want as your second line center? I don't know. Now, I don't think that the trade is as big of a problem as the return. If you want to tell me that the return that Botterill got was a disaster, okay, that's fair. Now, I would counter, let's let Thompson play another year or two, see what he is in the end, and also let's see what that first-round pick ends up being. I know it's a late first-round pick, but that doesn't mean that Great NHL hockey players weren't drafted in the last end of the first round. It's still a fantastic asset to have. And who knows what happens on draft day. Maybe it's part of a package to bring in someone else. So I don't think that story's been told yet. And I think that I'm probably sounding a little bit of a fan, like a fanboy here. Uh, But, you know, I kind of feel like sometimes this organization's been painted into a corner. They absolutely had no choice with Jeff Skinner. You had to re-sign him. If that meant overpaying a little bit, I'm fine with it. I think you almost had to trade Ryan O'Reilly once he stood up and said he lost his passion to play hockey. Maybe the return wasn't great. But it's a big offseason for the Sabres. We're going to track it here. Let's see what they do on free agency. Let's see what kind of trades they make. Let's see what the opening day roster might look like as it shapes up down the line. Congratulations to the Blues. Congratulations to our friend Joe Buck, whose father Jack Buck has been was the an original announcer for the St. Louis Blues. We played the clip of him calling their first ever goal at the top of the show. So congratulations to the Buck family. I know Joe was on here a few weeks ago uh, talking about how important to him being a Blues fan is. Uh, it's the one team he can cheer for uh, without having to worry about anyone um, getting on his case for being, you know, a homer or whatever. Uh, Joe and Fox are out at Pebble Beach, I believe, calling the U.S. Open this week. I'm sure we'll do something on the U.S. Open upon its completion. Maybe we'll have Damon on next week or someone else. Not sure yet. But today, what we're going to do is we're going to have Jim Florentine on next. Then we are going to have... The book club update, we got three books to talk about, four books to talk about. We'll do that. Then we will have Jason Turbo in to talk about his book, which is one of the four that we'll talk about in the book club update. And then we'll finish the show with some plugs and one last thing on just how unlikable uh, the U.S. women's soccer team is uh, as the Women's World Cup is in progress in France. Uh, With all that said, I think we'll take a break, and we will be right back with Jim Florentine.
Our first guest today was one of the hosts of that metal show and is the host of a podcast for now called Comedy Metal Midgets. He was also on Crank Yankers, had one of the best guest appearances of all time on the show, Gooey, and it's nice enough to be joining us today. A warm sportscaster's welcome to Jim Florentine. What's up, Jim? How you doing today, man? I'm doing good. Thanks for being on the podcast. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. Absolutely. So I, I kind of have a, well, I don't know if it's a funny story or not, but the other day we were emailing setting this up, and uh, I was driving in the car with my wife to a wedding, and you sent sent an email. I said, hey, why don't you respond to this email, and I'll tell you what to say. So I told her, you know, tell Jim, you know, whatever, you know, whatever I said. And I said, oh, oh, I said, make sure you, you open it up with Dear Jim. And um, so then later that night, I'm looking back at the emails, and I look, and she wrote Dear Him. And I'm like, what the hell is Dear Him? She's like, I don't know. I thought that's what you said, and you said it was a joke. I, I didn't think there was anything funny about Dear Jim. I didn't get it. So she thought I said Dear Him. So that's why the one email said Dear Him. Oh, okay. Well, so I, I don't. I didn't see that. I, I, I probably skimmed over it. And <laughs> didn't see that. I, every every email is addressed, dear Jim. Now, so I just <laughs> ignore it. It's one of the. It really is one of the great comedy metal midget gags. I think it is, and I know if I if I talk about it, I'm more people say I don't care. It doesn't. It's just weird when I keep reading that. I'm like, it doesn't bother me. But yeah, now everybody does it. <laughs> dearest of Jim, dear dearest Jim, <laughs> my dear Jim. Yeah, all yeah. <laughs> Then now, dear him. Um, exactly. Put me in the column of people who would like to keep comedy metal midgets. I don't know if there's been a groundswell for that. I know you've gotten a lot of good new what? names, but I, I, I I'm. Wait, I, wait, say that again. I said you got to put me in the column of people who like to keep comedy metal midgets as the name. I don't know if there's been a, a movement in that direction at all, but. What to ch- to make it a different name? No, like you, you've been talking about changing it. I, I would vote to keep it. I think it's. A brilliant name. Um, maybe I just you know um, I think because I'm I'm, a, I'm too associated with uh, with heavy metal, you know. So people see that title, it doesn't really describe what the what the podcast really is because it's not about heavy metal at all. Right. So you and just I'm still in that heavy metal world because I still, you know, I do a show on Sirius Satellite Radio and Ozzy's Boneyard and all this stuff. So I don't want. I just need something that's simple and go, you know, whatever it's going to be, Jim Florentine rants about everything or whatever the, whatever it's going to be, where it pretty much describes what the podcast is. That's fair. That's fair. I just always have loved the name for whatever reason. Sweet shirts, too. You mentioned, like, being associated with metal, and I saw on your Twitter today you're doing a gig with Def Leppard in a few days. You and Jameson, I think, are doing that gig. And obviously Brewer has been all around doing – the Metallica gigs, and you've talked on your podcast about doing Slayer and how as the night progressed, it would get progressively more difficult to kind of keep the audience's attention. How do you think those like opening gigs of comedians has kind of evolved? Why do you think we're seeing it so much more? And have you kind of figured out the formula to kind of best use that time and, and keep the crowd from kind of turning on you? Um, I think I think it's working more these days because uh the audience knows who's going to be on the show they know a comedian you know and brewer's a name everyone knows and don you know opening for these metal bands everyone knows him too so i think that helps that they're advertised on the show that they're going to do comedy uh before it was just like you know walking out there and you weren't on the bill like that slayer tour i did i wasn't on the bill at all it was just 
Slayer, Megadeth, and Anthrax. So no one had any idea I was going to be on that tour or opening and doing jokes. So, um, no, it, well, that's just, it, it's, it's not easy to do, but you just got to get to your, you can't tell stories and you got to get to your jokes a lot quicker. You got to work quicker basically because of the attention span and just like, you know, you can't be working the crowd who's married here and all that other stuff like you do at a regular comedy club. So you pretty much have to adjust your set. Do you think podcasts have helped at all? Because like, you know, you have a podcast, there is a podcast, almost everyone has a podcast, right? And people listen to them and are used to hearing you guys out of the context of comedy clubs now. And then maybe when they go to a live gig, they kind of almost look at it as like a live version of the podcast, which is really popular too. People doing their podcasts live and things like that. Do you think that's helped at all? People adjust to seeing you guys at the gigs? Well, see, that my, my stand-up is, is, is different than my podcast because I can't yep. just rant for an hour and say the word cunt 17 times (laughs) in front of a regular comedy audience. You know, I got to tone it down a little. It's got to be a little more, you know, it's still edgy and out there and, and, and vicious, but not as much as my podcast. It just wouldn't work in a, in a comedy club. Yeah, that's fair too. You know, I was, I was just watched your special last week. I got the house, which is available as you say, everywhere you stream shit except Netflix. Uh, So check that out for sure. Jim Florentine, I got the house. And it's really interesting. You recorded it at the Anthony Cumia studio. Um, and I thought it turned out great. And you did it yourself. And you got it out everywhere. 15 years ago, we would have never, maybe even five years ago, we would have never thought of specials being this way or comedy being this way. What about kind of the evolution, the independence you have, all the different ways you can present a special? Is it interesting to you? Is it exciting to you? Or is it just kind of like, hey, I got this material. I want to get it out. This is the best way. And then you're on to the next thing. No, I think it's I think it's great because you know, me, coming up in comedy, you only had Comedy Central or HBO. That were the only spots where you could get you know, oh you know, and then you know, do the late night shows or whatever. But that was just like a five minute set. But if you had a comedy special, that was the only homes you could pretty much get it on. And now that it's expanded, expanded. And now you get, if you have your own built in audience, you don't have to you know, if you can't get a deal with Netflix or some big deal, you can put it out yourself and your and just your audience will find it. You just tell your audience where to go to go get it. So it's great that you could do that now. We have those options before you're like, all right, well, I'm never going to, I'm going to, you know, they gave out like six or eight HBO specials a year and Chris Rock and Louis CK and all these, you know, killer comics were getting the specials. And for the newer guys, it was tough. So you really had no place to go. And now you do, it's great. So comedians could be a lot more productive and put out more material. Did it take you a few minutes to get comfortable in Kumia's spot? I mean, I thought it was a really interesting idea. I mean, I know it's kind of a small area. Everyone was kind of right on top of you, but I like the way they kind of put the audience. It almost gave it like a comedy club feel, and then they were able to do some stuff with the green screen, which I thought turned out pretty well. But what about for you? Did it take a few minutes to get the feel of it, or was it just another stage for you? No, it was just like another stage. I mean, it was like 35 people total. We brought in chairs and stuff like that. And they have, the grand, they have a little uh, grandstand in the back that you could sit on or whatever. So it, it was basically just, I've done comedy clubs that small where they're really small. I mean, maybe not as small, but pretty close. But it's just right on top of you as a comic. That's perfect. Slow ceilings and, and the, the comedy crowd right on top of you. It works out perfect for comedy. Quick, one more note on uh, the Compound Media Network, too. Just give Jameson a quick plug. That Jameson show is starting today on Compound Media. So if you're a fan of that, go to compoundmedia.com. Uh, that Jameson show should be pretty cool. Uh, happy for Don to be over there. 
What about the Dolphins? This is usually where we hit our, we hit our stride, Jim, when we get off the the random stuff and start talking football. How did how do you think they did? What what did you like? What did you not like about the offseason for the Dolphins? New coach, new quarterback. I don't know. Um, I'm not sure. You know, they got Josh Rose and they got him for a late second round pick, which is good because he was a you know the tenth pick of the draft last year. Mm-hmm. They did a great job with that. With the Cardinals, mm-hmm. huh? They did a great job with that, using the leverage, not giving up the fortieth whatever pick. Wait until 60. Right. Yeah, I thought that played out great for them. That worked, but, you know, I don't know, you know, is this guy going to be good? I don't know, but I guess right. it's, you know, you don't even know. They say that there's three great quarterbacks coming out next year. Mm-hmm. But even when they signed Fitzpatrick before they got Rosen, I go, that guy, you know, has four, you you know him in Buffalo, mm-hmm. has like four or five amazing games, and then he stinks for the next seven. So, that guy, so Miami, even with just going with Fitzpatrick, could still, have won next year six or seven games and would have been picking ninth or tenth and wouldn't got those top three quarterbacks. Right. Tua from Alabama, the kid from Oregon, um, I think his name is Herbert or something like that, who could have came out this year but stayed. And I'm trying to think who the third one is. Definitely those two, though. I don't follow college that much, but the third one. And then, you know, they said Tua might not even come out. He could still stay another year. Yep, he could. Yep. And then the following year is Trevor Lawrence, the Clemson quarterback who won the national championship last year as a true freshman. He's sick. You know, he's really right. he's really good. So the next two drafts with Tua, that's the one reason I think Tua will come out because I don't think he's going to want to be behind Lawrence in two years, you know. So I think he'll probably look at it as like next look, year's you never his know draft. With these guys. You don't. Great, you know, junior year and then they suck their senior year or great sophomore year and they're not that good the junior year so they drop. So you just don't know. Right, or Saban says, I'm going to run it 50 times a game this year, and his stock drops a little bit because he's not passing as much or whatever. You know, so that, right. it, yeah. Um, what about Coach? Um, look, I don't, you know, none of these New England guys have worked out mm-hmm. as coaches, as head coaches. You know, they're, they're, they, they, their roster always gets raided with, you know, taking coaches, and none of them done well as a head coach. He's 37 years old, but I do like that they got Jim Caldwell as, like, the assistant head coach. So that guy's been around and he's coached before. So he can kind of walk them through it, which will be good. Um, I don't know. Look, I'm at least I got Tannehill out of there. They needed a fresh start. Like, he just wasn't going to be any better than he is. Yep. And he's just mediocre. So, at least, and you know, hey, we'll see what Rosen has. So at least you you moved on. Like the Bills last year when they got Josh Allen. At least they moved on from their other shitty quarterbacks and said, let's see what this guy's get. Let's give him at least two, three years and see if he has anything. Yeah, you never know. You know, you, you know, a guy you draft, you know, like that one draft, I remember two of the top ten guys were um, Jake Locker and uh, Blaine Gabbert. You know, top ten guys in the draft. People were pumped, busts. You know, so you just, you got to give these guys a couple years. And I think maybe you agree or disagree with this, but in the, Social media age, it, it feels like there's more of a rush. You know, everyone get them out, you know, get them going. And, and the pressure just kind of feels like it comes a little bit earlier than it used to. But maybe not. I remember the same thing with Ryan Leaf back in 1998 when he started to sputter. The pressure built and he just kind of crumbled in it. Well, they, you know, the quarterbacks in college now are, are playing a pro offense. So it's easier for them. They don't have to sit for a couple of years to learn how the pro stuff works. So the most of them are coming out of it like an offense that worked that uh, they use in the pros. So it's not that big of a difference for them. Once it just, obviously it's faster, you know, the, the players are faster and better, but um, so that helps with the quarterbacks getting in there earlier than, 
than sitting a year. Yeah, the Browns might have cost themselves the playoffs last year by not getting Baker out there right away. You know, they tried to the Browns. Will, the Browns will one maybe one out of every ten years will be in the playoffs. They're not <laughs> going to do anything this year. It'll be six and ten or seven and nine. You don't so like Baker? You, you live near Buffalo. You you live near Buffalo. You know all about the Browns' misery. It's like oh, yeah. the Bills. Are the Bills going to go thirteen and three this year? I doubt it. Oh, I very much doubt it. Yeah, no, they're nowhere near three and thirteen te- or thirteen and three team. They're closer to three and thirteen. I don't know. Look, you know, RG three was supposed to be in the Hall of Fame after his first year. You don't know what Baker Mayfield. You don't know if Belichick's going to, uh, you know, perfect a great defense against them, and then everyone's going to copy that, and he's going to fall back. He's got a bunch of drama queens on the team. Yep, Beckham Jr., Jarvis mm-hmm. Landry, and you know, you got those two running backs. You got Chubb. You got. Uh, uh, Kareem, whatever the guy from the Chiefs. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you got that tight end that wants the ball. So you got a lot of baby crybabies on that are going to want the ball. So it's going to be, it's going to be, and that that guy Kitchens has never coached before. He's going to be in over his head with those guys sulking in the locker room if they start losing. And they're the Browns. Always just know they're the Browns. Yep. Oh yeah, the Browns. Even when they were good, there was the fumble in the drive, right? Even when they were when they were at their best, they still yeah, yeah they still found a way to have an epic failure. Um, with those two, Elway. Look, they're, they're lucky if they win nine games this year. They'll probably go seven and nine, six and ten. I just read before we came on too that Duke Johnson, who requested a trade, and then they put him on the trading block, and then they took him off. He's already unhappy, so they already got one miserable running back who doesn't want to be there. And that's just the worst way to start the season with things like that. But I do like Baker. I think Baker's sweet, but we'll see. No, I like him too. I yeah. wish, you know, I wish he was on Miami, but you don't know. You don't know after a year, look at what's his face in uh, Houston, the Texans Watson. Yeah. yeah. It was like his first year, his first nine games. Like this guy's going to be a, this guy's a hall of famer. And then last year he stepped way back and same with Garoppolo in San Francisco. I'm not sold on him either. You know, five good games in that New England system, and then he had five games when no one was even. You know, when he went to the Forty ers when no one, you know, when they were one and, and nine, right? And then he looked mediocre last year too. So you don't know. You got to give these guys two or three years. Yeah, I was talking to Mike Lombardi last week, and he's even a little worried about Mahomes. He said, you know, tape is going to catch up even in Mahomes a little bit this year. It would definitely will. Absolutely, yep. mm-hmm. you know. These guys come out and you're like, oh, holy shit. But then somebody figures them out. Somebody finds some glitch in them. And then every team copies that. Yeah, I think with Mahomes, he's just got so much farve in him in the sense that protecting the ball isn't always his number one priority. You know, he just, I mean, even that, remember that big play they made against Baltimore, like a fourth and 19? I mean, that's a play that a lot of times gets picked off. When you throw the ball 40 yards down the field across your body, into traffic, yeah. You know that one got completed, and it's a great play. But six times out of ten, Baltimore might find their way into picking that ball off, and then it doesn't look like it's quite a heroic play. Yeah, we'll see. I mean, with uh, with Mahomes too. I just, I'm not so. You know, you got to give these guys that after two years, you can more, you could kind of see where they're going to be. Cam Newton was going to be a superstar too, and he had a couple amazing years, and he's kind of fell back into the pack. A lot of those guys, though, you know, you don't know. Yeah, he had his MVP year and then just that disastrous Super Bowl against that awesome Denver defense, and it seems like he's never recovered. And accuracy is just an issue with him. And as injuries pile up and he can't move in and out of the pocket as much, he's got to throw from back there, and he's just not an accurate passer. And I think that's really hurt his game. Um, I get to see him two times a year as a big Saints fan since 1987, 
And I think that's the book on him is just keep him in there and make him throw it down the field because they don't even have great receivers either. You know, they haven't had right. a great receiver for him at all in his career, really, once Steve Smith left. And that was towards the end of his yeah. career anyway. So interesting. It'll be an right. interesting season this year. I'm interested to see how the Saints bounce back uh, after having a Super Bowl appearance robbed from them. Um, if Are they going to use it to their advantage as a motivation, or are they going to be stuck in a malaise and feeling sorry for themselves? And, you know, that's kind of an interesting. It's amazing how, it's amazing how they, the NFL let that happen. Ugh. You talk about a, you want to talk about a fix in football, with the, you know wanting the Rams in the Super Bowl because they got the new stadium coming to drum up some business in Los Angeles because nobody gives a shit about the Chargers and barely anybody in LA gives a shit about the Rams and once the Rams go back in the middle of a pack nobody's going to come to that brand new stadium, so you you know and that that that, that that's like, are you kidding me with that? There was two penalties on that. Yeah, by the time Sean Payton got to the locker room or to the press conference, the NFL had already called him to tell him it was wrong. I've never heard of it that quick, where they're reversing course like that, you know? And yeah. As a Saints fan... Well, then they didn't come out with a public statement, you know, for like a week or so. You right. Know, they didn't want to, you know... Because they were worried about that rule, they... that random rule in the rule right. book. Yeah. So they were worried about if he worded it wrong, that they could kind of nail him on that or whatever. I think that's why it took him so long to say anything publicly. Right. Well, look, Everybody knows with the gambling now and everything else, and you you could see it in the games if you watch a lot of games. These imaginary flags come out on third and seventeen, a late flag, and the defensive backfield to keep the drives going to keep these games close. So people put more money on them. They do, uh, you know, live betting, and they want the games close so people stay stay watching them for three hours. So they don't want to they don't want to review any of the refs. They don't want the refs, you know, any penalties getting reviewed because the, the refs know what to do. You know, wink, wink. I'm not saying every game is fixed. I'm just saying they want to keep them close. Right. Without a doubt. I said to my wife before the first playoff game last year, the Eagles game, I said, well, hey, as a Saints fan, at least I know it can't end any worse than last year. And then, of course, it ended worse. You know, because the Minnesota game hurt, but at least you got beat on a play. You know, at least the other team just made a play. Our guy made a mistake. You can accept that. You know what I mean? You can walk away and say, all right. It's a bad way to lose, but at least it was a football play, you know, as opposed to just blatant indifference by an official who was standing right there looking at it, you know. But I know, and then you know these officials don't work together all year. They're like the all stars, the best of, right? Which is, but they don't, you know, these a lot of these crews work all the games together, so they're used to each other. So put those crews on the playoff games, not a bunch of strangers that barely know each other. Right, and so much of NFL officiating, you see it all the time, is them getting together, talking about it. What did you see? What did you see? You know, so you need that chemistry of knowing, all right, he's going to look here, I'm going to look here, and then if we miss something, we can come together and we can kind of figure out what happened. Put it, you know, if they can't use the video for it, like in that case, they couldn't. We'll see how it changes this year with the new rules. But yeah, it's going to be an interesting season. The sportscaster here finishing up with uh, comedian Jim Florentine, who's going to be. In Western New York, in a couple of weeks, in Rochester at uh, what is it? The comedy at the Carlson. I was there one time. Pretty nice place. Um, yeah, it's cool. Yeah, it's, it's a really a nice venue. Yeah, nice, nice little comedy venue. Seems like they're getting a lot of great names too. Uh, Norton was just there a few weeks ago. Um, they've gotten gotten a lot of big names there. I've been a little disappointed with the one they built in Buffalo, the Helium. I seen you there the one time. I seen Norton there one time. Neither of you guys have been back since, and it just seems like. 
I don't know. Something about the place just I haven't it hasn't grown on me as much as I thought it might. Um, James, yeah, I don't know what the deal is with them. Why we don't go back? I'd love to. I, you know, I like that Buffalo area and stuff, but who knows? Yeah, you got a nice yeah. you got a nice crowd in there too. It's not like that was an issue. Yeah, yeah. So I don't know either. Um, but Jim's going to be there. Also, I mentioned the comedy special, which is called "I Got the House," uh, which is a, a special he recorded in Anthony Cumia's Manhattan Studios with Compound Media. You can find that as Jim says everywhere except for Netflix, uh, and also. I should mention, too, you can listen to it. You don't have to watch it, and that's available wherever you stream music if you search uh, Jim Florentine's name. Uh, also, the book was in the book club last year. Don't forget about Jim's uh, great book. I have it here somewhere, I think. Did you enjoy that? Did you enjoy doing the book and kind of promoting it and all that? Yeah, it was good. It was uh, you know different than doing a stand-up act or whatever, you know, getting that together, that whole uh, set, but... Um, yeah, it was good, man. It was good. You know, we got out. People are enjoying it. People are still buying it. So it's called Everybody is Awful Except You. Right. Everybody is Awful. Amazons and bookstores and all that stuff. So, yeah, I mean, so I like doing it. Jim Norton did the forward. You get a lot of them. Uh, people come in with them looking to get signed and things like that at the clubs now. Yeah. 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 Um, what else do I want to ask you? Oh, real quick. What's up with the San Francisco Giants? What has happened down there? They sold their soul to win three World Series in five years. Well, then that's worth it, then. Yeah, it's worth it. Exactly. Right, yeah. You would take that as a fan. Yep, absolutely. You would go, all right, I'll take three World Series in five years, I'll take it. They, You know, as soon as one guy, you know, Hunter Pence or whoever it was, got a big hit and helped them win a World Series, they gave him a huge contract, overpaid him. Lincecum, Matt Cain, all these guys. Posey, they gave all these, and then they signed Cueto and some margin that these huge contracts and, you know, um, because they want to keep, they wanted to keep fans in the stands. You know, they were selling out every game for like ten years straight, so they wanted to be competitive. But they really should have blown it up like two years ago. So they're still they're in the process of blowing it up, but they still got these big contracts. And that is a beautiful stadium. Uh, I would think that that stadium almost draws itself a little bit. Maybe not at this. Yeah, point. well, they used to get like they used to get like forty two thousand as a sellout. Now they get about twenty seven. Okay, because the team is terrible at the putting on the field. Right. But look, I, like I said, they got you know you got to tear it down at some point. They got they had a great farm system. They brought up all those guys, you know, Posey, Bumgarner, Crawford, you know, Matt Kane, Lincecum, all those guys who are just farm guys. Brandon Belt, Sandoval, and you know they got older and they just you know they they started to peter out. But like you said, if if you can get three World Series from that group, you'll take you'll take a reboot. You know, you'll you, you can grind out a few years uh and put the World I'll Series take, yeah. I'll take one do- I'll take one Dolphin Super Bowl and then five years of being 0 and sixteen. Absolutely. I, I for one. Someone asked me that you know, the Saints won a Super Bowl, Super Bowl forty four, and since then they've lost three playoff games that got named, which you know is never good when they give it a name, and then the Rams won. And someone asked me, Would you trade you know, the, those, I said, no, I'll take it. The way it's worked out, I'll t- if that had to be the trade-off, I'll take it. Um, yeah. Oh, last thing, and I'll let you go. You were in L.A. last week doing some Cranky Acre stuff. You pumped to have that back? How did that go? Are you excited about it? Yeah, man, look, I mean, you know, to make prank calls and get paid. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. You know, Can't beat I that. that. I thought that part of my life was over, but then, who knows, 12 years later, they bring him back to the show, and we're doing 20 episodes. 20 new episodes on Comedy Central. It's going to air sometime later in the year. I don't know exactly when. And yeah, I just went in, went in the studio and did a bunch of calls for him. So. Yeah, Carolla, 
Corolla was talking about it on Stern. He was, he was just saying that, you know, him and or that Jimmy kind of takes a step back, more of just like a executive producer figurehead, and he's kind of more in there. Is that kind of your experience? Yeah, I didn't see Jimmy this time. His brother John runs the show pretty much. John Kimball. He worked on the show back in the day too, so he's great. You know, they got a great staff of writers and all that stuff, and people come up with ideas. So that uh, no, was great to do it again, man. Like if I haven't missed a beat, I haven't done them in twelve years. How does it compare to what you got? Like, did what you did with Don at the telemarketing calls? Did that kind of help you keep your chops up, maybe a little bit in the gap in between? Yeah, I mean, I guess we did a CD a few years ago. We didn't do one for a while either. Um, yeah, I guess you just never, you know, you never lose that of messing with somebody on the phone, you know, just fucking with somebody. Right. It always just comes to you, even if you haven't done it in a while. Like, okay, I, I just, you know, I heard what this person said. Let me just try to take it in that direction. It's like riding a bike, as they say. Um, yeah, exactly. All right, let me lay everything out real quick again, Jim, and you help me out if I miss anything. Mr. Jim Florentine on Twitter is probably the best way to find out new information as this podcast ages. Uh, but, of course, you can find the Comedy Metal Midget podcast. For now, that's the name. It comes out every Sunday, usually every Sunday. Uh, and, of course, you can get that wherever you get podcasts. Uh, the comedy special is called I Got the House. If you want to watch it everywhere except Netflix, if you want to listen to it everywhere you get music, you can do that. Um, the book, as we said before, I Hate Everyone Except You. Available wherever you buy books, including ebook formats. Um, is there an audio book on that one? Yeah, it's 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 everybody is awful except you. Oh, what did I say? You said I uh, every uh, I hate everybody <laughs> but you or something like that. It's, it's I'm pretty an idiot. similar, but right. yeah, everybody is awful except you. There's an audio book. There's a so yeah, there's an audio version of it too. Okay, and then of course for those who are listening, like this week, uh, Jim's going to be in Rochester at Comedy at the Carlson. Uh, the what, fourteenth through sixteenth? Uh, June thirteenth to the fifteenth. Thirteenth to the fifteenth. Jeez, I'm brutal. All right. Well, you can see Jim at the comedy at the Carlson uh, those days anyway. And I probably even got the name of the club wrong, but it's something like that. It doesn't matter. Look, <laughs> that, that's not your job to you know to plug my shit. So don't worry about it. Yeah. No, that's it, a trade off. Rochester next weekend. Father's Day weekend, I'll be out there. Perfect. I should have said that. Anything else you want to plug? Uh, I really appreciate you doing this. No, that's it. Just a podcast. It comes out every Monday, Comedy Metal Midgets. So, uh, yeah, check it out. All right. Be well, Jim. Send my best to Luke. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. Could have used a few pounds Tight pants, points, hollering out She was a black-haired beauty with big dark eyes And points all her own, sudden way up high I want to thank Jim Florentine for being on the podcast today You know, it's funny I don't get nervous for many of these interviews Sometimes maybe when Feinstein was on for the first time or when Artie Lang was on or maybe the first Peter King interview. But man, do I get so nervous when Jim's on. I don't know why. I think because I'm afraid I'm going to say something stupid and he's going to rage it, rage on me or something. 
There's something intimidating about everything I love about him. Um, but thanks to Jim for being on. Quick book club update today. Uh, in a second, we're going to take a break and we're going to come back and talk to Jason Turbo. Uh, they bleed blue. Fernando Mania, the strike season mayhem, and the weirdest championship baseball I'd ever seen. A book about the 1981 Los Angeles Dodgers will be the topic. And we did about 35 minutes uh, with Jason. Really interesting story. And uh, I think you're really going to like it. Uh, so we'll get to that in a second. I did want to mention a few other books. First of all, Brof, On and Off the Ice with John Brophy, one of hockey's most colorful characters, is a book by a guy named Greg Inkman uh, who reached out to me and said, hey, will you check this book out? And I'm reading it now, uh, and hopefully we'll have Greg on soon uh, to talk about this book. It's a great read from what I've read so far. I've read about 75 pages or so. Just a really interesting character, someone I admittedly didn't know a ton about. Uh, but yeah, John Brophy, one of hockey's most colorful characters, the book called Brof. Uh, Greg Ickpin's the author of that one. Uh, I also got a book in the mail from a publisher called Smoke and Joe, The Life of Joe Frazier by Mike Mark excuse me, Cram Jr. And I talked about last time about how Mark had written one of the first 10 or so book club books of the month, A Day to Remember. Uh, was one of his books, and we had him on early in the book club uh, and really enjoyed doing that. And I'm going to speak to Mark, I believe, on June 19th, which is next week sometime. I'll run that interview uh, sometime after that. But, wow, talk about a fascinating book. Uh, boxers always have a fascinating story. I'm almost through it. Uh, Mark Cram Jr.'s book, Smoking Joe, The Life of Joe Frazier. The other thing that's still on the table that we haven't cleared yet is the Blake J. Harris book, the History of the Future, Oculus, Facebook, and the Revolution that Swept Virtual Reality. I haven't had a chance to line up with Blake yet, but we are talking. We will get to that, and it's a really fascinating book. Uh, I know that um, Ben Mesrich has a new book out about the twins that are a big part of the social network story uh, and Facebook, and a big part of Blake's book is Facebook and how they handle um, VR and, and the relationship with the founder of VR who sells the company to them and has fired. And this is a really interesting part of the book uh, there. Uh, but we'll talk to Blake soon for sure. The history of the future, Oculus, Facebook, and the revolution that swept virtual reality. Smoke and Joe, The Life of Joe Frazier by Mark Cram Jr. And Broff, On and Off the Ice with John Brophy, one of hockey's most colorful characters uh, by Greg Inkpin. And uh, what we're going to do now is we're going to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to talk to Jason Turbo about They Bleed Blue, Fernando Mania, Strike Season Mayhem, and the weirdest championship baseball had ever seen, the 1981 Los Angeles Dodgers. We're going to take a break, and we'll be right back. Our next guest is an author of one of the book club books of the month called They Bleed Blue, and he's making his first ever appearance on the podcast today. A warm sportscaster's welcome to Jason Turbo. What's up, Jason? Thanks for doing this, man. Hey, glad to do it. Thanks for having me on, Mike. Uh, the book is called uh, They Bleed Blue, Fernando Mania, Strike Season Mayhem, and the Weirdest Championship Baseball Has Ever Seen. It's the story of the 1981 Los Angeles Dodgers. And I got this book unsolicited from the publisher, and I was looking through it when I got it, 
And it was interesting because on the back of the book, you had a, a blurb from Jeff Perlman. And one of my first kind of thoughts looking at it was like, this is kind of like a Jeff Perlman book, but written by someone else. It's kind of had that vibe to it, kind of like it could have been, you know, part two of, of, um, of like his Mets book or something. Like, I hope that isn't like an insult or anything. It just kind of like gave me that vibe. Like, and I know you don't go out to write someone else's book or anything like that, but I guess the question is, it's a lot different than what you just did with, um, was it baseball? What was the last book called? The last thing I wrote was, was on the A's. Was on fantastic, the bombastic, fantastic on the swinging A's of the, of the early 70s. Right. So now you jump up a decade and you're doing the Dodgers. Uh, why the 81 Dodgers? What got you interested in them? And what about the comparison to it being kind of similar uh, to a Perlman book? Yeah, man. Well, uh, I think unless you're John Rocker being compared to Jeff Perlman is, is, <laughs> is a favorable thing. I'm, I'm happy to take that any day of the week. The, the guy has written many great books. Uh, and, and I've read many of his great books, uh, and cited cited numerous of them. In fact, I cited his uh, his Showtime book here in, in in my book on the L.A. Dodgers, because they both teams were in Los Angeles at the same time, and uh, you know, as you know, kind of a party central town in in the middle of the cocaine era, uh, it, the Dodgers were were no strangers to, to that scene. Yet somehow they're they're uh, they're Bright lights were were wildly outstripped by their crosstown basketball neighbors because because nobody compared to the Lakers when it came to to appreciating Los Angeles for all it had to offer. Uh, as for why I wrote the book, I mean, it, as it turns out, I was raised in San Francisco in the Bay Area uh, as a, as a Giants fan, so I was 11 years old in 1981, and I loved nothing more than to go to Candlestick Park and boo the Dodgers. Partly because the Giants were terrible, and there was not much to root for in terms of, of actually winning baseball games, uh, and and the Dodgers were always good. They were a fun team to root against. Uh, you know, I, I I don't know how old you are or if you remember Candlestick Park, mm-hmm. but but there was kind of a unique layout to the place wherein the visitors team dugout was not connected to the clubhouse via a tunnel. Players had to walk across the field to get to their dugout, and so Giants fans, you know, made it, it was almost ceremonial. They're they're booing of the Dodgers as they as they went to the dugout before the game, uh, and Tommy Lasorda ate it up. He would blow kisses every step of the way. He soaked it in like nobody else. And even though I enjoyed booing him like everybody else, I also appreciated him for that. And uh, you know he was very good natured about it, and and never gave any indication of of anything else. So you know this team was on my consciousness from the beginning, and I knew it was a good story, and I knew there had never been a book written about it. And the more I dug into the details of that season and those players and what went into making this champion, the better the story got. And, you know, as a journalist, that's what I want. You know, I'm, not, I'm not a fan when I start writing these, these books or these stories. You step into a press box. You're not cheering for a team. You're cheering for a good game. And, and the same is true here. I mean, I, I learned to appreciate this team on new levels. I mean, I, I already knew that they were very good and, and wished my own team as a, as a kid was more like them. But but as, you know, as, as a professional sports writer, I, uh, I, I really came to re- respect them on a much deeper level. Well, you mentioned Lasorda, and he's one of, obviously, the more interesting characters in the book. And it kind of kicks off with him and his interesting rise to being Dodgers manager and how he had this like unbelievable dedication to the organization and passed up other opportunities around the major leagues at good salaries to be manager uh, and stayed and waited and grinded until he finally got 
his chance uh, with with the Dodgers. And I know personally, I always the last couple times I've been in the World Series, I thought that'd be kind of cool if they can get one more when Tommy Lasorda is still around. Because even to this day, when I think of the Dodgers, one of the very first things I think about uh, is Tommy Lasorda, who, like I said, is a really interesting character in the book. What did you learn about Tommy um, writing it, and, and what about his role? in the book kind of excites you as someone who's presenting this to a general public? Tommy was as genuine as a character got. Everything we've seen about Tommy Lasorda from afar, the, the, the rah-rah attitude, the hugging players after home runs, the bleeding Dodger blue and praying to the big Dodger in the sky, that was all completely genuine. He did that as a minor league pitcher in the Dodgers system. He spent eight years as a minor league manager for the Dodgers at at various levels. He did it there. I mean, he he was the most vociferous on-field cheerleader in all of baseball as a minor league manager. And and people said, that's great here in Ogden, Utah, or Pocatello, Idaho, but that's never going to play in in the big leagues. Well, he sort of got promoted to become the third base coach under Walter Alston in Los Angeles, and he kept it right up. I mean, he, he was shimmying there in the third base coach's box. He was he was you know, the, the the most prominent on field cheerleader in the major leagues. And he got he got more press as a third base coach than Alston got as manager. And people said, okay, well, you're just the coach. If you ever become manager, that won't play. Then he became manager in in September 1976, and he didn't he didn't miss a beat. He kept it right up, and it worked. It, it there was never a moment in which it didn't work, partly because the players who were instrumental to his early success were the same players who had come up to the major leagues right. through his teams in the minors. They, they all knew him. They knew what they were getting, which is not to say that they all loved it, but they all understood it. And they, they knew what they were going to get from Tommy uh, top to bottom. And, and he was able to make it work for him. It was amazing to me when I was reading it. He was like, the one thing holding him back from being manager is he's just getting in too many fights. They had to talk to him and say, you have to fight less. I just thought that was like priceless. Like, okay, well, all right. Was, I mean, he was a very, he was a very feisty pitcher. Mm-hmm. I mean, we were in the, the modern era of, you know, brush back pitches and whatnot for, for all these slights on the diamond. And my, my first book, The Baseball Codes, is on the unwritten rules. So I'm well versed in that. And, and Tommy Lasorda is actually fairly prominently featured in that book from 2010. And, and he, he was not shy about knocking batters down. He had a mean streak a mile long. He did not want to cross Tommy Lasorda. And it took him a while to, to kind of tame that, that side of his personality once he became a coach and a manager in the minor leagues. You know, you're supposed to have some semblance of authority and kind of set a good example. And, and, and there he was charging after opposing pitchers himself. It, was, it, it took him some time. That actually ended up slowing his, his ascent to the minor leagues. He had to convince the Dodgers brass that, that temperamentally he would be able to, to handle that promotion. And, of course, he was. One more thing on Tommy, and we'll move on. You mentioned that the, the the question was, would it work in the majors? I guess my question in 2019 is, would it work in 2019, do you think? Just your opinion. I think that part would work. I mean, you see some of it in somebody like Joe Madden with the Cubs, who you know has his team dress up in crazy uniforms and, and has all these kind of team building exercises that look like they're totally fun and and you know as an from an outsider's perspective seem like they work. You know, I don't cover the Cubs, so I I, I can't speak uh, thoroughly to that, but it, it appears like a successful formula. You know, they won a World Series with it. So I think that part if he handled correctly, it would work. 
I think from a tactical standpoint, Lasorda was much more of a, a, a go by his gut manager, even even by you know, the, the meager standards of the 1970s and, and early 80s. He, he wasn't one to much follow statistics or analysis. Uh, and it, it was a drawback to a degree, but also there were times when it worked surprisingly well. I mean, you can look at the 1981 World Series. There was a game in which he pulled his starting pitcher, Bob Welch, with nobody out in the first inning. Right, The guy had given up a zillion hard-hit balls, uh, I think four or five base runners, a couple runs, and Lasorda gave him no slack, pulled yeah. him out immediately. Yeah. And, and in another game, in that same World Series, he had justification to pull Fernando Valenzuela probably two, three, four times within the first three innings, but he left him in. And Valenzuela ended up throwing a complete game 5-4 victory. So you know, who, who knows what you know what Lasorda was thinking, but in, in at least some instances, his uh, his gut worked for him. I was talking to um, Mike Shope, who does uh, he does a afternoon drive show in Buffalo about the book. I was telling him I was reading it because he's a big baseball guy, and he was talking about how he was a huge Cincinnati Reds fan in 1981, and how he hated this Dodgers team because the Reds are really the big loser in the strike in 81 and kind of the way the league decided to play things with the first half, second half, the Reds were the team that kind of didn't make it because of the formatting and the way it went, which I thought was interesting. But how about a little background on the 81 season, the strike and kind of how it affected the league and how it helped these Dodgers? Sure. Well, I mean, it all goes hand in hand with, with why all Reds fans from, from that year are so bitter. Right? The, the Dodgers got off to a great start thanks to Fernando Valenzuela, in large part, who we can discuss in a moment. Yeah, we'll talk about him next. Uh, sure. Uh, but in late May and early June, they started to backslide something fierce. They had a six-and-a-half game lead over the Reds, which evaporated almost a game a day. The Reds went on a crazy seven-game winning streak at the same time the Dodgers went on a losing streak. And that six-and-a-half games evaporated in what, what seemed like overnight. And by the time the strike hit the lead was down to one half game. The Dodgers had lost another game that very day. And it's not, it's not extreme to think that if the strike occurred one day later, that the Reds would have caught the Dodgers in the standings. They were even in the loss column. Had Cincinnati not had a game wiped out in, by rain in which they were leading the Giants 6 to nothing, they would have ended up tied. As it was, the Dodgers had a half-game lead when the strike hit. 50 games of the schedule were wiped out. And when play resumed in August, baseball figured the most equitable solution was to you know, play two halves of the season and crown a first-half champion and a second-half champion. And, and that gave us our first-ever divisional playoffs. But it, it also meant that for the Reds, who ended up with the best overall record in the, in the National League West, they didn't make the playoffs at all because Houston won the second half. Right. So, so they're understandably bitter. For the Dodgers, it meant everything. Because in the second half, they were on a 100-win pace until Ron Say had his arm broken by a pitch from San Francisco's Tom Griffin with about three weeks left in the season, after which they went on a 100-loss pace. Right? So what, what was a four-game second-half divisional lead turned into a four-game deficit over the course of about three weeks. The Dodgers didn't win the second half. Had they not held that half-game lead over Cincinnati in the first half, they would have missed the playoffs entirely. So, so yeah, one team's fortune is, is another team's Amazing. You know, maddening schedule quirk. Amazing. The 6 nothing right now, I, that blew me away, too. 
that game, if that doesn't get washed out, talk about the change in history. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this 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 Dodger team is notable for making the very most of every chance it was given. It faced elimination, multiple elimination games, in in both rounds of the playoffs, and then dug itself a big hole in the World Series and and clawed its way back every time. It, and it was a team of veterans that really, you know, seized every ounce of luck made available to it. So they go into 81 having had the rookie of the year the two previous years, uh, something that the A's would do again in uh, the late 80s. Uh, their 89 World Series team had, well, was it Canseco, Maguire, and Weiss who won three in a row. So this team here has two in a row, and then Fernando comes along. He's going to win the Cy Young and the rookie of the year, which is pretty sweet. Um, but I was, I was thinking about this last night. It's like if someone came up to me and said, well, I don't understand Fernando Mania. What was it like? Is there anyone you can compare it to as a contemporary, like maybe Linsanity? But that lasted, what, a week? Try uh, I'm to ex- sorry, I missed that reference. Oh, uh, you know, uh, Linsanity with the Knicks. Oh, um, Linsanity, got Yeah, it. Jeremy Lin. Yeah, maybe. I mean, in, in baseball terms, you know, I, I think about Mark Fidrich in 1976, I believe it was, when, you know, he came up with the Tigers and – and he was a quirky personality. He was tall and gangly with this big shock of, of blonde, curly hair. And he, he sees the national consciousness pretty thoroughly. And that, that, that went away quickly, um, you know, when, when his success did not continue. But Fernando was beyond even that for, for a number of reasons. Uh, to, to start with, I mean, he came from almost nowhere. Opening day rolls around in 1981 – you know, the Dodgers have already lost their best pitcher, Don Sutton, to free agency. He went to Houston in the offseason. Jerry Royce is ready to step up as the number two guy. He hurts his calf in, in the workout the day before spring, uh, before uh, opening day. The next guy in the order, Bert Hooten, has surgery on an ingrown toenail. He can't go. The next guy in the order, Bob Welch, has bone spurs in his elbow that cost him you know, a, a week or two. The next two guys in the order had just closed out the, the spring training schedule with the freeway series starts against the angels that left only one guy <laughs> fernando valenzuela who is 20 years old fresh chubby. out of mexico yep. chubby yep. like this thick black hair spilling down from his cap his belt is spilling his gut is spilling over his belt he has this weird delivery in which he looks skyward you know while his lead leg is lifted he throws a, a freaking screwball of all things and he's he's this this wonderful curiosity that no one has ever heard of. He's never started a major league game. He, in fact, he became the first player in the 98-year history of the Dodgers to start on opening day, the first pitcher. And what does he do? He goes out and, and shuts out the class of the National League, the Houston Astros. And, 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 and no one could really figure out what was it. He didn't speak English. No one, no one was getting his insights into the game. And, and then he goes and throws a complete game in his next start. And then he goes and throws a shutout in his next start. And another shutout in his start after that. And another shutout in his start after that. In fact, in that fifth game, which is, was his third straight shutout and, and fourth in five tries, he went three for four to up his season batting average to 438. Like, there, there was nothing <laughs> this, this guy couldn't do on a baseball diamond. And, and the country went a little bit nutty for him. Like, he kind of like Fidrich was this interesting character valenzuela was also interesting for very different reasons but the national consciousness seized onto this guy who could not lose and by the time he had made his first eight starts 
the first eight of his big league career, he was 8-0. and He had thrown nine innings in every single game, thrown five shutouts. He gave up four runs total across 72 innings. His ERA was 0.5. So this, this obviously was great for the Dodgers on the field, but uh, in my mind it was equally important for what it did for the Dodgers off the field. And that's because their ballpark, Dodger Stadium, was located in Chavez Ravine, which is about a mile from downtown Los Angeles, uh, and and behind this you know relatively steep hillside. Uh, before the Dodgers got there, you know, all in the early 1900s, Chavez Ravine was home to a vibrant Mexican community. Thousands of people lived there. They had a couple schools, a post office, they had a church, and sometime in the 19 late 1940s and early 50s. The Los Angeles mayor, a guy named Fletcher Bowron, decided he wanted to build a public housing project there. You know, he wanted there were there were some shanties there in, in Chavez Ravine. There were some 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 very nice houses as well. But he wanted to unify everything, and he made the offer of first shot at the new units as they became available for whoever sold their their property to the city. And the residents kind of spot for what it was. They understood that they would probably be evicted anyway via eminent domain, or. Or, or whatnot, if they didn't sell. And so most of them ended up yielding their property to the city at below market prices. The trouble came in 1953 when Bowerin was voted out of office, right? He had the plans all drawn up. He had architectural renderings. But the new mayor was a Republican who rode in on a wave of McCarthyism with the Red Scare from the 1950s. He branded subsidized housing as a socialist plot, scuttled the project entirely, that left Los Angeles with a bunch of empty acreage that they immediately turned and offered to Walter O'Malley when he wanted to move his team out of uh, Brooklyn. So their last season in Brooklyn, the Dodgers sold about a million tickets. Their first four seasons in L.A., they pretty much doubled that. And that was while they were playing at the L.A. Coliseum, while Dodger Stadium was being built. Once Dodger Stadium opened in 1962, they sold two and three-quarter million tickets. That was a major league record that they continued to better pretty regularly over the years. Right? Everyone loved Dodger Stadium. They loved the Dodgers. Couldn't wait to come see the Dodgers play baseball, except for the local Mexican community, who was still, understandably, very bitter about their treatment uh, in Chavez Ravine. And this really mattered to the Dodgers because there was, there was a higher concentration of Mexicans living in Los Angeles County than anywhere in the entire world outside of Mexico City. This was a fan base they desperately wanted to tap. Uh, and to, to the point where Al Campanis, you know, their longtime general manager, uh, kept, kept talking about how he wanted to find the Mexican Sandy Koufax, the guy to activate Mexicans the way that Koufax had activated Jews. Jewish, yeah. And they, they, they trotted out you know, a number of, of Mexican players in an attempt to, to you know, reach this fan base, but none of those players were very good. And, and the Mexicans continued to stay away until Fernando came along. And in the middle of that crazy 8 nothing run, you could see it. You could feel it in the grandstand of Dodger Stadium. It, like, it was described to me as, as a big mariachi party. Right? It, and it wasn't just the Mexicans. Everyone bought into it. Like, the, the whole city of Los Angeles was, was fully embracing this, this Mexican culture in, uh, because of this Mexican pitcher. And it w- really was unifying in, in kind of a wonderful way. And to this day, you know, the, the Dodger, one of the Dodgers' biggest fan blocks is made up of Mexicans. So he, and he made such a difference. Jaime Hurin, the... the longtime Spanish-language broadcaster, then and now, who served as a translator early on for Fernando, told me that nobody in the history of baseball has single-handedly created more fans than Fernando that year 
And I, I find that claim totally believable. Yeah, it's, it was an amazing just the way he took off. And, and you mentioned in the book, and you just mentioned now, how the Dodgers had tried for, for years, as you said, to tap into that market. And then, bam, here's the guy. Here's the perfect guy. And, man, I was trying all night to try to think of a, like a contemporary comparison. And the best I could do, like I said, was Jeremy Lin. But I don't even think that that even comes close to to doing it justice. I, I don't think it does. I, I mean, he wasn't he wasn't serving to represent displaced people. Right. Um, you know, there's, there, there definitely, you know, the Asian market is underserved in the NBA for any variety of reasons. And he did great things with, with that period of time. But I, I think that's a t- it's tough to compare anyone to Fernando. Right, just such an amazing and, and the book does a great job of kind of even going into more detail about Venezuela. We talked about Fernando. We talked about Tommy Lasorda, who I, I think is probably the star of the book. But this is also a team that had a bunch more all stars. Dusty Baker was on this team. Steve Garvey was on this team. Pedro Guerrero was on this team. Davey Lopes. What about some of the other stories? Obviously, if you mentioned the eighty-one Dodgers to a hundred baseball fans, the first two things that are going to come up are Lasorda and Venezuela. What about some of the deeper stories? What what kind of fascinated you most about uh, the B sides? You know, not the hits, but the the deeper cuts on the album, yeah. so to speak. The extended dance remixes, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, the, one of the big stories is a couple of the, those guys you just mentioned. Steve Garvey and Davey Lopes, along with Ron Say and Bill Russell, formed the longest-running infield in Major League history. 1981, they had been together almost nine years, so which cool. is about double yeah. the next most durable infield That's ever. so cool. Like that, that's a crazy record, yep. and that's definitely a record that will never be touched again. Uh, and somehow, they had never won a championship together. They had been to three World Series. 1981 was their fourth in eight years. But they had lost in 1974 to the A's. They lost in 1977 and 1978 to the Yankees in increasingly painful fashion. And they knew that 1981 was almost certainly their last year together. They were all on the wrong side of 30. Uh, The contracts were coming up. And the Dodgers farm system was absolutely loaded. They knew they were going to be shuffled aside. Going into spring training, this was was a, a common conversation point like this is our year if we're ever going to have a year it has to be this year if we're going to win a championship together uh the funny part is those guys didn't particularly like each other like, they all come up through the minor leagues together they've been teammates since you know since their early 20s and you know I, I, they they went their own separate ways after the game they they had their own you know, their own quibbles with each other for various things but once they crossed those white lines man they they really played good baseball together the sportscaster here with Jason Turbo, just like the engine, he told me. Uh, the book is called They Bleed Blue, the 1981 Los Angeles Dodgers. It's available now. You know, where you buy books, uh, you can get it. Uh, the the team, like we said, they kind of backslide into the playoffs. I think in the second half, they, they were basically just under 500 baseball and finished four games out of the lead in the division. Um, and then they start off in the first division series against the Astros and it didn't go well um, in the beginning they kind of had to grind that out um, they're were, they were best of fives until the World Series um, put themselves in a hole against Montreal had to grind that out and then they get to the World Series about the Yankees which we'll talk to we'll talk about in a minute but what about the uh, the playoffs the National League uh, playoffs anything interest you 
the most about that and just kind of other than maybe the way that they just continue to put themselves in a hole and then found a way to dig out, grind it out? Well, I think that's that's exactly it. I mean, the, the, the division series against Houston, those, the, those Astros were made, they were custom-built for the Astrodome, which was this big, cavernous ballpark. They had overpowering pitching featuring Nolan Ryan and Don Sutton, who had just left the Dodgers, uh, got injured late in the season. Nonetheless, they had overpowering pitching, and the Astros just crushed them in the Dome. You know, the Dodgers were a power-hitting team, uh, especially in Dodger Stadium, but they, they were just seeing their, their fly balls die at the warning track again and again in, in Houston. They went back to L.A., and, you know, maybe it was, it was losing two World Series in a row to the Yankees in 77 and 78, but the Dodgers kind of understood what winning looked like and the difference between winning and losing, and they absolutely buckled down, and they won three straight at Dodger Stadium facing elimination in a best-of-five series. They, they immediately turn around in their next series against Montreal, a, a fabulous team with three Hall of Famers, Andre Dawson and, and Tim Raines and Gary Carter, and get into a 2-1 two, two hole, a 2-1 deficit in another best-of-five series. They again have to play multiple elimination games, and again they win them all. all right, the last one played in Montreal, won by a, a late-inning home run by Rick Monday, is, is still to this day in Montreal known as Blue Monday. It, it helped that it actually happened on a Monday, right? But that knocked, that knocked the Expos, you know, out of, out of. They probably would have been the favorites over the Yankees in the World Series. So the Dodgers go in into New York again with very little turnaround time, and lose the first two games to the Yankees and find themselves in another desperate hole. But this this was a team that was able to seize chances like like nobody else. And you know, looking back at. at numerous baseball champions over the years. You know, this actually reminded me a lot of the Oakland A's I wrote a book about, the three-time consecutive champions in 72, 73, 74. And one thing I heard from all those players on the A's teams was that they had learned what it took to succeed in the postseason, right? They were, they were talented enough to kind of catch lightning in a bottle in 1972, their first championship. But by the time they won their third one over the Dodgers, they were absolutely dialed in. And to a man, they said, we understood intrinsically that it's not every game that matters or every inning that matters or every at-bat that matters. It's every single pitch, and you have to be as prepared as you can be front to back, every single pitch of a baseball game. And it, it took them a lot of trial and error to reach that point. I mean, it seems like common sense, but, but that degree of concentration – uh, you know, at, at that level of play, is, is is no easy feat. And the A's figured it out, and these Dodgers, through their various World Series losses leading up to 81, figured it out. They they were in a position to seize whatever opportunities were given to them. And especially in that World Series, if you look back at it, the Yankees made a number of, of mental errors, just enough for the Dodgers to seize upon and come back from that two-game deficit to win four in a row. Just a quick side note, because you mentioned him. Do you ever think about doing like a sequel to your A's book and doing one on the the late '80s run? I'm always fascinated by that group. I got to rally someone is, up to write in the a sweet book about that that group. That is a fascinating group. I mean, that's that, there's definitely the dark side of steroids to that group. Yeah, I think the the story of their championship would be overshadowed by the the behind the scenes stuff. And, and the it would be very interesting. There's the definitely earthquake. something there. Yeah, the earthquake when they win it, the Gibson home run, Eric uh, Ackerson's a, um, I think a really interesting character. 
Um, yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm t- just trying to rally rally the rally a book about that at some point. Um, You're on. <laughs> Do you hear me, publishers? Yes. <laughs> Give me a call. You know, that's an interesting question. Maybe not a Dodgers question, but as a guy who's focusing on writing books, and we talk with Jeff about this sometimes too. How do you balance what you want to write and what would sell? Like, how how do you find that balance? And and is is that what makes it really hard to come up with topics? Is it can't just be about what maybe would be the most interesting. It's got to always be about what. Yeah, it has to be interesting, but it also has to be something you can get a publishing house behind and that you can get sales for because we're not just doing these books, you know, for some historical library or something, right? Like you're trying to make a living. Can you kind of talk about that balance a little bit? No, absolutely. That balance is totally key to me. And there, there are people who can write kind of small publisher books on topics of their choice because they have full-time jobs doing other things, which is awesome. And I laud them, and they're great books that come out that way. This is my full-time job, so I've right. got to get a, a pretty big publishing house willing to give me a, a sizable advance to write it. Uh, and, and if there's not interest there, there's no book sold. So ideally, those things overlap, right? I'm interested in this topic, and so is a publisher. That worked really well for the A's. That worked really well for the Dodgers. And hopefully it'll work really well for the next one. But, you know, believe me, I've, I've been researching topics outside my, my area of expertise to see what, you, what topics are, are selling right now, what, what might be interesting, what could inspire me in a direction that, you know, is outside my comfort zone. And that's okay, too. You know, you don't always have to be comfortable doing what you what you're doing, uh, and 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 sometimes that leads to uh, unexpected new directions. Do you have um, do you have a superstition, or do you have a a thing where like you don't like to let the cat out of the bag about what's coming next? You keep it real tight to the vest until you're ready, or are you pretty open about what you're doing? Well, what's kind of your philosophy on that? As soon as I sign a contract, I'm very open about it. Okay, that doesn't matter. And the book is close to publication. I've got a couple irons in the fire right now that are still being negotiated, so I prefer not to talk about them. No, that's but fair. Next, yeah. next time we talk, hopefully there will be many more conversation topics. Do you have a? Do you have a um, like a dream book, like a, you know, the number one? Even if it's not necessarily realistic, is there one that if you could spend six months a year of your life to write, it's number one? Uh, yeah, and that's one of the ones I'm negotiating right now. Okay, so, of course. You know, as my grandfather <laughs> said, from your lips to God's ears. I hear you. Okay, well, I'm hoping for that. I, listen, I'll say a prayer for that one, too. I'll work out them for <laughs> sure. Um, the book, it's the 1981 Los Angeles Dodgers. Uh, they Bleed Blue, which is a, um, a sort of saying, if I recall correctly. Uh, Fernando Mania, Strike Season Mayhem, and the Weirdest Championship Baseball It Ever Had. Hey, Father's Day is Sunday, right? So... If Dad likes Man, baseball is, at all, this is right up his alley, I think. This is a perfect Father's Day gift. Yes. And, you know, as, as my wife, who is not at all a baseball fan, keeps telling me, this isn't a Dodgers book. This is a baseball book. Yes. And the stories here are, are way too good to limit them to Dodgers fans. There's, you know, the, with immigration and, and labor issues, and, you know, Fernando coming over. They're, they're big picture baseball stories. And, and, I mean, just like the A's, but I think my A's book is not at all, you know, A's fan, strictly A's fan appropriate. I think anybody who loves baseball will be interested in this story. I think the same thing holds true here. You know, I, I devour baseball books, you know, partly for research, but, but partly because it's what I love to read. And, and getting a unique look at a different team, kind of like the aforementioned Jeff Perlman did with his 1986 Mets book, 
uh, is, makes us all the richer. Do you have a favorite baseball book author? I I love I love Jim Jim Booten's Ball Four, right? And Boys of Summer is, is probably my all time favorite. I think Roger Kahn just wrote that book so beautifully. Uh, he he set a very high bar for the rest of us. Uh, I I can't let you go without asking you about my favorite Dodger of all time, who never stepped on the field for them, but Vin Scully. Um, you know, the greatest thing about the internet the last few years is I got to just listen to him for like the last five years of his career. Like every night I'll lay down on the East coast, there's games started late. So it'd be perfect. I would just lay down and listen to this guy, tell stories and kind of fall asleep to his voice. Um, covering this team and, and the Dodgers, did you, did you get any cool, any anecdote about Scully or anything you want to share about him? Yeah, I mean, Scully was, was definitely in the background here. Uh, he he had just retired when I was researching the book and was not granting any interviews. So I didn't talk to him firsthand for this. I've, I've talked to him previously in previous years. I'll, I'll say one of my favorite moments as, as a sports writer was sitting in the, in the press lounge at AT&T Park in San Francisco and hearing Vin Scully come, you know, come out of the radio over my, my shoulder and then realizing, oh, wait, that's not the radio. That's Vin <laughs> Scully sitting right behind me, just, just talking over lunch. And, you know, it didn't even matter what he was talking about. Just listening to him talk from that close was just so great. Uh, yeah, I mean, let's talk about legends. Oh. I mean, Vince, Vin is the only guy who can give Lasorda a run for his money. Yep. As he's the most durable legend in, in Dodger history. I mean, he was there forever, and he deserves every, every bit of accolades he gets. The Dodgers are an interesting organization because, like, three of the biggest icons are, you know, Vin, then... Lasorda, and also the stadium to some degree, right? Like I went out on my honeymoon. We spent a week in Los Angeles, and we went to Dodger Stadium, and that was like, like, oh, let's spend a day and like have a Dodger dog, and you know, arrive late and leave early, like you know, like let's do it, like let's <laughs> when in Rome, let's Dodger when in Rome, right? Yeah, let's Dodger Stadium it. But uh, we had a great time there, and it's such a beautiful place to watch a game on a Saturday night. They played the Mets. Um, it really is. I mean, it's it's got all of its. You know, 1962 charm. Yeah, I mean, they've, they've updated it some. They've made the the field of play smaller. They've filled in some of the, the what used to be vast foul territory with seats. I mean, back when I was growing up in in the 80s, Dodger Stadium was not a great hitters park from the standpoint of there was so much room in foul territory that hitters you know would, would pop up foul balls that ordinarily would reach the stands and they'd just be automatic outs. Uh, and and now that's gone. And the Oakland Coliseum used to be the same way. And uh, but other than that, it really is very much the same as it always has been, which is a super charming ballpark. And I agree, it's really fun. And compared to San Francisco, very affordable to go to games. Right. That's a beautiful ballpark, though, too. Yeah, it is. No, yeah. Certainly no complaints about San Francisco. One of the nicer but modern no. ones, for sure. Let me ask you this last thing. I'll let you go on this. We are talking to Joe Buck uh, about the St. Louis Blues and how, you know, being a baseball guy – and a football guy, it's kind of taken a little bit of the joy away from his childhood teams and things like that. But the Blues, since he doesn't do hockey, has always been able. It's, he's always been able to find some some respite in that and, and be a fan and, and love the Blues. And he's having a good time, obviously, right now as they get ready to play Game Seven of the Stanley Cup Finals on Wednesday. Uh, you grew up a Giants fan, and I was just thinking about this. So many years into the business, did you get to enjoy finally when they did win the World Series? 
uh, the three World That's Series? That's a tricky question. Yeah. Because I, I, was, I was covering that World Series, uh, and I was in Arlington Stadium when they finally won. And I've been actually talking about not this particular moment, but I've been talking about Giants fandom a lot as, as I launched the book because you know, I mentioned it in the acknowledgement section that I wrote this book as a Giants fan. Right. And that's the one thing people seem to seize on and want to talk about a lot. And, and I, I point to Johnny LeMaster, who came in just after Willie Mays and left just before Will Clark, and he was a Giants shortstop for 11 seasons. And the, the, the relevant statistic for Johnny LeMaster is that of everybody in Major League history who had come to bat as many times as LeMaster, only one created fewer runs. He was terrible offensively, and that's an understatement. And he was also pretty terrible defensively, but not as terrible as he was offensively. But he was nonetheless the starting shortstop for a decade for my favorite team. And he, he shepherded in the longest stretch of playoff-free baseball since the 1890s for the Giants that perfectly overlapped my childhood. So I had nothing to root for other than beating the Dodgers. And that's, that's <laughs> almost literally true. Uh, so fast forward to 2010, the Giants win the World Series. I'm losing my mind, except I'm covering the game in Arlington. You can't cheer in the press box. Right. I guess one of the, one of the long-time rules. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's the same, same mentality that I can use to write this book with a clear head you know, and, and not hold anything against the Dodgers. Uh, so I actually had, I had several stories to file. I was one of the last people to leave. Uh, I actually had to find a security guard to lead me to an unlocked gate because they locked the main press exit. I, it wasn't until I got to my rental car that I could sit down and close the door and just kind of scream my fool head off for, for a good 10 minutes straight before I, before I drove back to my hotel and settled down. That's awesome. One of my first, like, well, maybe not my first, but one of the baseball memory I was just talking about it too that sticks out to me. Is Will Clark's grand slam in Wrigley in the '89 NLCS? It's like one of my childhood memories. Not first because I had the first World Series I remember is the Royals winning in what was that '85 with George Brett. So I was a good few uh, few years into baseball, but yeah, I always think about that home run for some reason sticks out to me. Oh yeah, Mitch Wildthing Williams. Yes, the, the, the dominant closer who gave it up to to the thrill. Yeah, no, I mean I was I was. That was in the prime of your yeah. fandom, I'd assume, right? Right in high school? Absolutely. Yeah. For sure. I, I, was, I was over the moon about that. Huh. They bleed blue. Fernando Mania, strike season mayhem, and the weirdest championship baseball I'd ever seen, the 1981 Los Angeles Dodgers. It's not even $20 for a hardcover on <laughs> Amazon, uh, and it will be there in time for Father's Day, especially if you're a prime That member. is worth it. Yeah. And the other thing we didn't talk about, but it's available on Kindle too. Not even fifteen bucks. You can have it in six seconds, and uh, you can read it. The thing I like about eBooks, Jason, is I can go to bed with my wife, stay up four hours later than her reading, and she never knows it happened. She can sleep comfortably, and go. I can read comfortably. Uh, but thanks for doing I, I this. Can all, I, I, can, I can also tell you that I, I narrated the audio book. So if, if reading isn't your thing, you can go pick up the uh, the audio version and listen to to my my terrible nasally drone. And get this, Jason, if you don't have Audible, you can download the app, sign up, they give you one book for free, so you can literally oh. get it for absolutely nothing. You there you be, go. Yeah. The only downside is it does, it does not include the footnotes. There's, there's no way to, to smoothly integrate footnotes into right. an audiobook. So. And they are fantastic. The book is kind of heavy on footnotes, as you know, but yes. as people who haven't seen it don't know, there's, there's a lot of kind of extra information that's, that comes with the, uh, the printed page. Um, don't forget Twitter. You can find out more information, I'm sure, about Jason's whereabouts there. It's at baseball, at baseball code, baseball code. 
Um, so you can do that. Um, anything else you want to plug? Uh, I will say that The Baseball Codes was my first book about baseball's unwritten rules. I've been blogging about it since it came out in t- 2010. So if you, if you want to follow along on you know, what is a rapidly evolving kind of system of, of respect within baseball and how players are reacting to it for good and for bad, baseballcodes.com or at baseballcodes. Listen, I could do this for hours, but I only asked for 30 and blew by it already, so I'm going to let you go. But thank you so much. Good luck on the pitches uh, for the future books, and hopefully uh, we can help you sell them again on the Sportscasters. I really appreciate this. That sounds great. Thank you for having me on. I want to thank Jason Turbo and Jim Florentine for being on this episode of the Sportscasters. Don't forget you can find this week's show and all of our shows on our SoundCloud page, soundcloud.com slash sports-casters. You can find out more information about the show and our projects and my life on Twitter at sports underscore casters. And you can email me. i got a big stack of books building up. If you'd like one, email me, please, at thesportscasters at gmail.com. Uh, Also, you can find the podcast wherever podcasts are found, you know, Apple, Stitcher, those places. And if you'd like to catch the podcast somewhere where the podcast catcher is catching it, uh, let me know and I'll set it up for you. Uh, A few other plugs. The Adams Division podcast is back. And uh, we did part one of our top 10 single season sports teams countdown, Peter Winston and I. Uh, Peter, of course, our friend at Greetings from Allentown at GF Allentown Pod. And the episode appears on his podcast feed as well as on the Place to Be Nation feed. So I want to thank Scott and Justin at Place to Be Nation for having us on. Uh, Peter and I go about two hours. We count down our favorite teams, number 10 to 6 in part one. Uh, we also have a sna- snazzy new logo drawn by a friend of mine uh, from high school named Chris Smith. Uh, More on Chris soon. Uh, Thanks to him for the logo, and thanks to Justin and Scott for inviting us to be on the Place to Be Nation feed. Uh, First of all, you can find Peter, who co-hosts the show with me, at GF Allentown Pod. He has a new podcast out about Memphis 1981. I always like those episodes from promotions and a time where I know nothing Peter does a great job of kind of helping me learn about that period of time and and that territory, and I always love those shows. Uh, The Place to Be Nation uh, podcast, I'm going to be on it this week. Uh, They're on Twitter, at Place Number 2 B Nation. So P-L-A-C-E 2 B-E Nation. Um, At Place Number 2 B Nation on Twitter. For more information, I'm going to be on the flagship this week as we talk about a 1989 house show from the Madison Square Garden. I believe it was September. Uh, so we will talk about that on there. And also you can find the Adams Division podcast on their feed as well as a bunch of other feeds. Um, also, I want to congratulate my friend Adrian Dater. Uh, he made a big announcement today uh, about his future covering the Avs. I'm going to let Adrian give that news out. It's his news. 
uh, to give, and I think that we will be a part of it in some way. Uh, why don't you follow Adrian? He's at Adater on Twitter, and you can get more information about his plans uh, for covering the Avalanche next season and going forward. Uh, and I think that's it for plugs. So let's go into one last thing. Now, I want to be careful because I don't want to come off as a dick. Um, I don't. And I don't want to come off as a sexist. I don't. Uh, but I have to say that the U.S. women's national team, the soccer team that's competing and representing our country uh, in France, they're a disgrace. And they're so unlikable. They have got to be the, the least likable national team I can ever remember. And one thing I love doing uh, is cheering for the United States of America. The only time I don't do it is when they play Italy in men's soccer. And that's only because of a personal family thing. But otherwise, I love cheering for the United States of America. The hockey teams and the world juniors, uh, the women's team when they play in the Olympics, the men's Olympics team. Give me any U.S. team. I'm there for them. I love to cheer for them. I can't cheer for this team. They're incredibly unlikable. And, of course, the controversy started. Now, I thought they were unlikable before this. Uh, but the controversy started when they beat Thailand 13 to nothing. Now, first things first, I have no problem with 13 to nothing. That's the rules of the game. Okay, the tiebreaker is goal differential. They and Sweden are going to kill Thailand. So you have to make sure you do everything you can to beat Thailand by more goals than Sweden is going to. Which, of course, you don't know when you're playing the game since you've drawn them first. So I have no problem with 13. You need to go score as many goals as you can uh, and put yourself in the best position to win the group. Fair. No problem with that. But the celebrating is obnoxious. Come on, girls. The 13th goal of the game and there's a choreographed celebration going on. That's just a bad look. It's a bad look. And then after the game, the first thing that they say in their defense is, would we be questioning a men's team for this? Of course we would. We've been questioning men's teams for unsportsmanlike play for years and years and years. Every time a college football team beats a cupcake, a national power, a blue blood team beats a cupcake by 60 points in September, we kill them. During the BCS era, we would kill teams for running up the score. And of course, they would defend themselves. Look, style points matter. They even took that margin of victory out of the equation of the BCS because teams got killed so much for running up the score. They argue about equal pay. I don't know all the numbers. Okay, I don't know all the numbers. But I know that the Men's World Cup brought in revenue in the billions. And the Women's World Cup, I don't believe, even brought in hundreds of millions. These teams are paid. Like, we always hear this argument, like, no baseball player is worth $9 million a year. And I always argue, well, it's based on the revenue of the sport, the amount of money that's available to be divvied up. 
Would I like to see a teacher be paid $9 million a year? She's the best teacher in the world. Of course. But who would foot that bill? Right? In, in soccer or hockey or baseball, these things are based on revenue. The women's national team in soccer has brought the United States glory way beyond what the men's team has done. But that doesn't pay the bills. Now, I don't have all the numbers. Maybe they deserve a raise. Maybe they deserve to be paid close to what the men, or maybe more. I don't know. But I'm sure it's based on revenue, not sexism. I don't think the guys at the the U.S. Soccer Federation or the ladies in charge are like, you know what? I just can't stand these broads. We got to pay them less than the men. I like that men's team. I like the men. Let's pay them. I just, maybe I'm naive, but I don't buy that. And I just cannot stand Megan, whatever her name is, who represents the United States on the national team and has the guts to stand out there with, during the, our national anthem, in another country, take her hand off her heart, ignore the national anthem. Just days after we celebrated the 75th anniversary of D-Day and what those men, those boys, those kids sacrificed for this country. And a soccer player, a soccer player, someone who makes her living, a living she doesn't think is lucrative enough, is protesting our anthem? I hate it. I hate it, I hate it, and I don't like them. They're unlikable. All they do is whine. Whine about pay. Whine about how they're treated. Whine, play the sex card every time. Every time something is said against them. Oh, would you do this to the men's team? Yes. Yes, of course we would. Show some class out there. What, I tuned into. um I saw a video online of the Canadian broadcast of the World Cup. Four women killing them. What are those four women? The only four women in the world who uh, who only criticize female teams? No, the world is embarrassed by the way you play that game. Not the score. Not the 13 goals, but the way you celebrate it. Goal 8, goal 9, goal 10, goal 11, goal 12. Hand the ball to the ref and go back to the huddle. In the words of the tragically hip, act like you've been there a thousand times before. Show some class. You're a national team and represent the country that has given you the opportunity with a little bit of dignity. Even if you hate it, you know, suffer through the national anthem for a few minutes. Everyone else on the team seems to do it. Megan Rapinoni or whatever the hell your name is. I don't even care what your name is. It's an embarrassment. I can't stand this team. I hope anyone but them wins. I love rooting for the United States in these tournaments. And this team is so unlikable. I'm rooting for anyone but them. Anyone else. Anyone. Brazil can win. Of course I'll be cheering for Italy as my number one now. But Canada win. I'd rather have Canada win this tournament than these girls. They're just a disgrace. They're so brutal. All right, we'll be back next week.
is to go.